How's everybody doing today? It's Christian Wagner. I'm the Militant Thomist. So today we're going to be having the next installment of the life of Pope St. Pius X. I know you guys are really excited for this one. And we're going to be going over his life as a bishop. And then uh, next we'll be going over his life as the Patriarch of Venice and then as a Cardinal and then as uh, as a Pope. So before we get uh, into it, remember to share this video with, uh, I, I always forget to tell you guys this, but it really helps uh, me out if you share this video to those who would be interested in studying the life of Pope St. Pius X. Uh, that would really help me. Uh, make sure you like and comment to uh, absolutely annihilate that algorithm. And if you really appreciate what I'm doing, become a patron at patreon.com slash militant and the link should be in the in the description below for all of the other stuff that I have going on, uh, including the Discord and everything like that. So let's get right into it now. So in 1879, the bishop, and this was the bishop of the diocese that he was residing in as a canon, Bishop Zanelli, died. And Pius was elected to be his temporary replacement. So at this point, Pius wasn't elected to be the bishop, but he was the vicar capitular. That's that was his title. And it was kind of uh, similar to the role that the uh, cardinal secretary of state takes when the pope dies. He, he, he was just leading the diocese. Uh, for the next year, he didn't have any sacerdotal power as the bishop and wasn't elected as the bishop. He was just the guy for the job uh, while they were preparing to get another bishop. And during this year, he really showed himself as a wonderful administrator, and uh, he, he accomplished a lot in his short year. And everybody began to take notice of his administrative powers, because before, everybody had taken note of his abilities as a preacher People had taken note of his personal piety, but he really hadn't had much opportunity to shine as an administrator. And this was a wonderful opportunity for him that would set him up uh, for his future, uh, future as a bishop and then obviously as pope because administrative abilities are very important. So in 1882, he was moved to the Diocese of Padua to work in a different diocesan position for the bishop over there. And I wasn't uh, able to really find out what this position was, but it was, I'm assuming, similar to his position in, the, in his previous diocese. And then in 1884, so this was five years after he had this job as the vicar capitular, he got a mysterious 
call to the bishop's private chapel. And usually this is this is not um, something which uh, happens often. Usually you don't get a call to your bishop's private chapel. And the bishop came in and told him to kneel down before the Blessed Sacrament. And they sat there kneeling in silence, praying. And then the, the bishop handed him a private letter from Rome. So this is a bit concerning. So he opened the letter and realized that he was being elected to the bishopric of Mantua. And Pius absolutely flipped out. He started weeping. He, he felt himself to be very unworthy of the position of a successor to the apostles. So he went ahead and he wrote uh, Pope Leo XIII, who had elected him to this position. And he said, look. I am the worst of the worst. I am a terrible administrator. I am impious. I am the absolute worst. And I do not deserve this position as a bishop. But Pope Leo XIII, nevertheless, was not convinced of Pius's arguments. And Leo XIII went, went ahead and told him, uh, under pain of mortal sin, that he had to take this position as the bishop of Mantua. So early in November, Pius said, and this was in 1884, Pius set out for Rome. And then on the evening of November 8th, he was received personally by Pope Leo XIII, and he got to know uh, Pope Leo XIII and got to chat with him. So that was nice. And then on the 16th, he was consecrated a bishop in St. Peter's, and he remained in Rome for another 10 days, finally on the 29th, returning to Treviso. And on this trip back, there's another funny story of uh, kind of Pope Leo, uh, not Pope Leo, Pope Pius's personality coming through. So there were two men on the train to Treviso talking, and they expressed how uh, disappointed they were in the in the new bishop, which was Pius. And they said that he was probably uh, some country bumpkin. He was probably stupid. He probably was a, not a good um, administrator. And they were just ranting on this train. So Pope Pius uh, walks over and he starts going on about how bad the new bishop is, which was obviously himself. And he went over all of the attributes that a, a good bishop should have. And he compared them to himself and said that this new bishop is going to be the worst bishop that you will ever have. And the two men on the train, they were like, yeah, you know, uh, this this new guy, uh, this priest that I've met on the train, he should he should be the bishop. He seems like a very bright guy. He seems to know what a what is needed to make a good bishop. And Pius is like, uh, no, I don't, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm up for it. And then Pius walked away and the guy that was with Pius went up to the two men and the two men are like, what, what is, what is that guy's name? Because obviously back then you didn't have readily available pictures. So nobody really knew how their bishop looked like. Nobody knew how uh, any of these guys looked like, but uh, the the guy with Pius answered, well, that is the bishop elect of Mantua that you were talking to. And and that I, I don't know how they responded, but that is one of those stories of Pius and his his love for uh, playing tricks like that on people. He just he just found it to be hilarious. So Pius went back to to his seminary to say goodbye. But he he 
found that he could not say goodbye. So Pius actually just left a note and secretly slipped out of the seminary and went back to to his uh, diocese for the first time. And when he had went to the bishop's palace of his diocese, he had um, the people of the city had heard that he was coming and everybody gathered outside of the bishop's palace. There was the, the whole town, all of the clergy, the, the wealthy families within the, within the city. There was everybody outside of the bishop's palace. And, he, and they wanted to see the, the new bishop. So he went out on his uh, balcony and he gave him the Episcopal blessing. And this was, this was very, very interesting to me. I was, I was thinking during the, reading this point of the story in the late 19th century, this is really something that we only see nowadays when it comes to the election of a new pope. But when it comes to crowds forming, uh, giving, the, giving the blessing to the people and everything like that, that actually wasn't formally something that was just done with the Pope. Every time you would get a new bishop, this is how people would act. So it's something that we've really lost in the uh, in the way in which modern Catholicism works, is we don't have this same fervor for a new bishop like they used to have for every single see. This wasn't just something that happened with the Pope. So when it comes especially to the background of the city of Mantua, it is uh, it is regarded as a very rough city. It is it was called a fighting city, and um, and this it was famous for being actually the birthplace of Virgil. And throughout the pre Renaissance, uh, Renaissance and post Renaissance uh, era, it was a very corrupt Episcopal see, and it was held by uh, some members of the family of Gonzaga. It's kind of like how you think of how the Sea of Rome was during this era is there was a lot of these wealthy families who would basically try to buy and take over the Sea of Rome. It was like that, uh, unfortunately, with a lot of the uh, diocesan seas throughout the throughout Italy and then throughout Europe. So um, the spiritual state of the diocese also was pretty terrible. There were uh, strong divisions between the, the clergy and the people. They definitely did not like each other. And the seminary, which was very recently founded, didn't have any students. It had a few, but it bas basically there was no students. There was no vocations in this diocese. There were parishes left and right, especially throughout the countryside, who did not have a priest. And there had almost... there. Nobody could remember the last time that they had a diocesan synod. So Pius had his work cut out for him. He had been given a very bad diocese, which means that this wasn't really a punishment, but it means that the the Pope had a lot of hope in Pius. So um, he he really had to set himself to reforming a lot of these errors. And we'll see this in the future, that Pius is definitely known as a reforming pope. And he was like that always. He was a reforming priest, as we saw. He was a reforming rector, of, you know, spiritual director of the seminary. He was a reforming canon. He was a reforming vicar. And he is a, uh, he's a reforming bishop. And this will definitely, we, we see a lot of these threads setting themselves up for the great success that he found in his papacy. So here's a section from his first pastoral letter, which I thought was absolutely amazing to, uh, to, to set up 
his his future min, Episcopal ministry in his diocese. So he wrote, quote, I shall spare myself neither care nor labor, nor vigils for the salvation of souls. My hope is in Christ who strengthens the weakest by his divine help. I can do all in him who strengthens me. His power is infinite, and if I lean on him, it will be mine. His wisdom is infinite, and if I look to him for counsel, I shall not be deceived. His goodness is infinite, and if my trust is stayed on him, I shall not be abandoned. Hope unites me to my God and him to me. Although I know I am not sufficient for the burden, my strength is in him. For the salvation of others, I must bear witness, face dangers, suffer offenses, confront storms, fight against evil. He is my hope. So when it comes to uh, those those various issues that were in the diocese, he first began to set out to, to reform the seminary. Because, I mean, that is really the heart and soul of a diocese, is if you do not have if you do not have vocations, then your your diocese is really going to fall apart. We see this happening a lot in, unfortunately, the Western churches, a very strong lack of vocations that needs to be reformed. But nevertheless, with Pius, within a year, he went from barely having any seminarians to having 147 seminarians at the seminary. And uh, when it comes to reforming it, he also had reforming the diocese, that is, he also convoked a synod in order to organize the priests to serve all of those empty parishes throughout the countryside. He said, look, your your days of laziness, just chilling in your in your uh, single parish, those are over. You need to serve multiple parishes. You need to serve all of these parishes without the priest. He had a very strong, um, very strong doctrine of the Eucharist and the necessity of the Eucharist. And then also a very strong view of, uh, sorry, one of the dogs is just growling. That's super weird. So he also had a very strong view of the necessity of the priesthood too, that you needed priests in order for the people to flourish in their faith. But uh, there was a problem with all of this success. He was Pius was really suffering from success, and uh, like the like the DJ Khaled uh, sort of um, meme, suffering from success. That was Pius. So he had all of these seminarians, but the diocese was still very poor. So they had all of these seminarians, but they couldn't feed the seminarians. The seminarians had no food. So what what Pius did is Pius sold all of his possessions. Uh, that he had back in his hometown because he had a few fields and stuff back there still. And he gave away all of his money that he got his bishop. So as, as we see this, we, we see a trend of him just giving away all of his stuff in order to temporarily feed the seminarians until they could get a little bit more money to be able to feed them. So during this time in his life, there's, there's also another, there's also another uh, funny story that happened. So he had a very open office as we'll get into a bit later uh, he he didn't schedule meetings anytime during the day. If you wanted to visit, visit the bishop, uh, you could just show up and be able to sit down and talk with him about any of the issues that you had. So there was a certain man who came to his office and requested to see the bishop. And he he actually, Pius was the one sitting out there. And he thought that Pius was the bishop's secretary because, again, uh, there's no... Uh, well, there is photographs back then, but there isn't really this mass media sort of thing. So people didn't really know how Pius looked like. They really didn't know how their bishop looked like unless they had personally seen him. So he kept talking uh, 
to what he thought was the bishop's secretary because the bishop's secretary would usually be a priest. So, I mean, the guy was right to talk about his problems with him. So he went on and on about his problems, and uh, Pius really was consoling him. And then at the end, uh, this man made the comment that uh, that he was really glad that he could talk to the bishop's secretary rather than the bishop because he was really worried about talking to, to such a man as the bishop, uh, to talking to somebody so prominent about his issues and that he felt like he couldn't do it. And then Bishop, then uh, Pius was like, surprise, it's me. I'm, I'm actually the bishop. And he kind of, and he chastised the man for, uh, for having this view of the, the episcopate that he was really his servant and not somebody to be feared talking to So uh, also another practice that Pius had is Pius recognized that when it came to parish priests, because he had been a parish priest, that oftentimes Episcopal visits would be a burden to them because they made almost no money. And having to prepare for the coming of the bishop from a poor parish would cost a lot of money and it would become very difficult. So Pius ordered that when he visited a parish that there wouldn't be this this great pomp that he wouldn't stay in the best house or anything. He would just sleep on the floor of <laughs> floor of the church. That's, that's where he would, uh, that's where we, we, where he would go. And that the only thing he did request is that um, the only preparation made for his reception is that they would say mass and they would say a good mass. Um, they would have a very solemn mass with, they would have an, an Episcopal mass. That is the only request that he had is because of his, uh, his very deep devotion for the Eucharist. And because of his money problems, he actually had a a very interesting solution. So what he did is he wrote a letter to the mayor. And this is in this is in uh, 1880s. uh, This might be 1890 by this point, but this was in 1880s Italy. So there wasn't this same church state relationship. It was very, very rocky at this point. It was it was very rocky. The The church and the state of, of Italy were definitely not on the best terms at this point. But he wrote the letter, uh, wrote a letter to the mayor and formed a sort of local church state relationships, a sort of diocese town relationship where they would have this uh, almost crypto union between the the locality and the diocese, the diocesan um authorities. So I thought that was an interesting way of going about it to be able to build again this sort of integralist model of society is being able to have individual bishops and then individual um, politicians, uh, local politicians be able to come together. And uh, I, I thought that was that was very interesting. So um, again, Pius had a very strong, emphasis on education, even during this time. So he built many, many schools throughout his diocese for the education of children. And again, he built up the seminary. And interestingly enough, going back to his pastoral visits, something that Pius would do is this, this is uh, absolutely a boss move. So he would go and he would catechize the kids himself. He would go through the catechism with them. He would uh, question all of the kids himself to make sure they were ready for confirmation. And he would reject them if they weren't ready for confirmation. And what he would do is if the kids weren't ready or uh, he heard from the local priest that the parents of the kids were not taking their kids or uh, forcing their kids to go to catechism, he would he would go to the parents and he would threaten them with excommunication. And he would just like Pius was was said to be a very mild mannered 
um, and gentle man, but he would absolutely flip out if he heard that parents were not uh, were not um, giving the kids their birthright as baptized Catholics and not taking them to catechism. He would he would absolutely just wreck them if if they wouldn't take their kids to catechism. And then another thing that he did is he would when he would uh, make these pastoral visits, he would insist that Gregorian chant be be implemented and he would help with the the training of of the people and choirs for uh, having Gregorian chant in their churches. And you see this again in his papacy is that uh, Pope Pius as a priest, as a bishop, as a pope, it, no matter what level Pope Pius was at, he was uh, implementing these same reforms at every single level. And this just shows us a model for for priests and bishops that they don't really need to be, they, they don't necessarily need to be pope in order to make a lot of these reforms. But reforms really start on the parish level, start on the, the diocesan level before they even go to the universal level, which is eventually where he took it. So uh, the way in which his day looked like at this point, I thought it was interesting, uh, the way in which his his normal routine was was outlined. So at five o'clock in the morning, that is when he would celebrate mass in his private chapel. And then right after this, he went um, he went to confession at the cathedral. And it wasn't really clear whether he was confessing or whether he was hearing confessions. I'm assuming he was hearing confessions because uh, daily confession would be uh, would be interesting to say the least, especially from a pious man like him. Uh, I, I'm sure he wasn't confessing mortal sins every single day at the confessional. I'm, I'm assuming he was hearing confessions every single day. So then uh, he would he would go to breakfast after this, and all he would eat would be a piece of bread and a cup of black coffee, which is which is a very interesting breakfast. I think we should all implement the pious breakfast, which is um, a cup of black coffee and a mouthful of bread. So then he began his day's work after this. And as I said before, he didn't have set hours for receiving visits. He would just uh, do his do all of his diocesan work. And if anybody showed up, he would receive them. And it was said that no matter how distressed people would be in coming to visit pious, that they would that that uh, his secretary would witness that he would hear people uh, laughing <laughs> because Bishop uh, Pius as Bishop was um, was a very cheerful man and he was able to bring people out of their sorrows and people would always leave much better than they would come. So then after all of this, um, in the evening, he would take a walk around the town and greet all of the people in the town because, I mean, at, at this point, uh, as their bishop, um, and this is kind of sad that it's not this way anymore. I was just thinking about that earlier today is as Bishop, he could just walk around town and people would know who he was. He would go and have conversations with them. And and we're in such a, uh, a, uh, how do I put it? Cosmo cosmopolitan society. We're in, we're in a, we're a group of people that love to just move around away from our localities. People aren't where their parents and grandparents grew up. Uh, I mean, I was, I was blessed by that, but uh, most people, most people aren't like that. So you don't really know the people you even live near. It's very rare to even know your neighbors, much less be able to uh, walk, have your bishop walk through town and uh, have a chit chat with everybody. So then after his walk, he would go back home. And at 9 p.m., he would say his rosary with everybody uh, in his household. 
And after that, he would study until about midnight and then wake up the next morning and do the same thing. So he had also at this point, um, he was very good with cultivating a great respect for his authorities, especially for Pope Leo XIII. And during this time as bishop, it was the sacerdotal jubilee of Pope Leo XIII. Did I say Pope Pius XIII? I meant Pope Leo XIII. So uh, here's a quote from one of the speeches that he gave, and I thought this was just showed his amazingly high view of the papacy and of especially Pope Leo XIII. So he said, quote, Leo XIII is the guardian of the Holy Scriptures, the interpreter of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the supreme dispenser of the treasures of the church, the head of the Catholic religion, the chief shepherd of souls, the infallible teacher, the secure guide who directs us on our way through a world wrapped in darkness and the shadow of death. The successor of the church is in the Pope. All of the foundations of our faith are based on the successor of Peter. Those who wish her evil assault the papacy in every possible way. They cut themselves adrift from the church and try their best to make the Pope an object of hatred and contempt. The more they endeavor to weaken our faith and our attachment to the head of the church, the more closely let us draw to him by the public testimony of our faith, our obedience, and our veneration. So, the the veneration was actually mutual. You at this time get a famous quote from Leo the Thirteenth about Pius, because at this point, as an amazing administrator, uh, still a stellar preacher and such, uh, people began to take notice in an even wider circle than just uh, this small area of Italy, and he began to get more uh, worldwide fame at this point. And Leo the 13th uh, said at his election to uh, the bishopric, he said of Pius, quote, if they, that is the people of, um, of his diocese do not love their new bishop, they will love no one. So he had a very um, high respect for Pius, which will uh, be seen even further at our next step when he becomes the patriarch of Venice, one of the most important, uh, uh, diocese in well, patriarchates in the world. So uh, that's all I have for you. Thank you for coming here to listen. Remember to subscribe, Patreon, um, and all that stuff. So thank you.